Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Star Wars is over. Sorry about the mess. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. Good luck. And villains. And aliens from a thousand worlds. in the making and it's coming to your galaxy this summer andy it's the new season holy what season cow. is it we are at season 12 12 season 12 and these aren't like you know God. six episode seasons this is like full year seasons this is we're kicking we're starting our 12th year yeah of this podcast 12 years that's a lot of movies a lot of us. Uh, if you if you just look at the films that we have talked about on the next reel, uh, which is a lot of films, this is what the five hundred and something film. Five hundred and something. Yeah, five hundred yeah. and something. Five hundred sixty third films that we've talked about. Third. Okay. All right. God, a lot that's of movies. Crazy. That's a lot of movies. So many movies, and we uh, this we we have to talk about what we're doing this season. Yes. We've we've started trying to make a season a thing, uh, and we did it last season. It was all women directors, and this season we're doing something different. This season, uh, we said, you know, there are a lot of uh, movies that people have said over the years. Oh, have you not covered this movie? Why haven't you covered that? Those that you know franchise and stuff like that, and and a lot of them are just really big movies. And we've kind of been building a list of all these um, different movies that we want to talk about, and we were like, you know, there are a lot of these bigger series that would be nice to talk about what if we did an entire year just looking at and checking off a lot of these big movies and so yeah this season we're covering a bunch of big uh, franchises and series that uh, that have been brought up over time or just ones that we've been curious about or ones that are really successful or interesting or have been popular at one time but might have faded into obscurity or and, and just from other parts of the world. So it's going to be a really interesting exploration of kind of this world of um, storytelling in multiple films as we kind of uh, explore the season. We're starting with a series that was, I, I think it's probably the series that is closest to uh, the first series of our show, uh, which was Indiana Jones. Um, yeah, yeah. 
with with this movie that uh, a series that's, that uh, was so close to us in our youth and our formative years of movie going, uh, and that is the original trilogy of Star Wars. And I keep saying Star Wars with intention. I'm not saying the tag at the end because it I wasn't known to me as that tag at the end. Yeah. It was always just Star Wars. Right, 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 right. I don't mean to be pedantic. Of course, the tag you're meaning episode four, A New Hope. A New Hope. It was just yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, yeah. And so that's we're kicking things off with uh, with this franchise, which will be fun. And we should just tell everybody, if you do want to see the full lineup, just go to our uh, our um, HQ page over on Letterboxd. You can look at our entire rundown of the entire season. We're looking at um, 15 different series this season. So you can check them all out over there uh, at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Um, but yeah, Star Wars, Pete, where were you when you first saw Star Wars? I was in the theater uh, with my uncle, Tim. Do you know where, like what theater and where, what town, which, which screen uh, it, in the, in the <laughs> cineplex? <laughs> what, was, were, what were the dimensions? There was only, there was only one. <laughs> it was a single screen cineplex in, in, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, my uncle Tim took me, and uh, I I thank him for that to this day. Every time I see him, oh, excellent. Okay, I don't remember. I was I was very young, and I don't remember the st- cross streets. But was it? But you saw it uh, when it first came out. So in that yeah. first, the first run, yeah. Yep, yep. Tim was a big sci-fi head. I mean, he loved it, and he needed somebody to go with. He didn't want to go alone, and so he took he took his uh, nephew. He took his young... So my parents did not take me to Star Wars. That's... Do you ever question them about that? Like, hey... Always. I... Always. And I blamed my dad for it for years because, you know, and I think that is largely why he started taking me to every opening day of the big movies after that, because he regretted missing Star Wars the first time with me. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Interesting. Every every subsequent movie of of in the Star Wars, the original trilogy, James Bond and Star Trek, we saw opening day in the theater together. School day or not. School day or not. That's fantastic. Yep. Um I uh I did see this in the movie theater as well. Um when it came out with my dad, I don't think I, I can't remember honestly if my sister came or not because she was um you know a year and a half younger than me and and I would have been uh four and a half or so when this came out so I was very young and uh so if uh if she had come she would probably they I I really just can't imagine that they would have brought her Mm -hmm. I uh it was uh in Steamboat Springs we live in Steamboat Springs Colorado and it was the the movie theater in the on the downtown on, on Main Street there I think it was called the Thunderbird, I want to say. Um, I actually had had research to this theater at one point because I was trying to remember some other theaters. It's it's since uh, changed names and uh, been completely redone and and torn down and everything. I just can't remember. Um, I, I want to say it was the Thunderbird. It was this great little old theater in the in the Main Street area, and um, I uh, my my big recollection of the movie was that I was sitting on an aisle and there was a person in front of me who was tall and blocked the screen largely. And so I spent 
a big chunk of the movie leaning my head out into the aisle so that I could see the picture better. That's my big memory of my oh. first my first experience with Star Wars. But you don't remember, do you, I mean, how would you possibly remember? Do you remember the story from that event? Like, do you remember any of Star Wars from that? Did you go to like a Star Wars themed party immediately afterwards? I, I just remember like the end battle. Like that is what really stuck with me, that that big space battle. Like that's the stuff yeah. that stuck with me. And then, of course, I mean, we were the perfect age for the toys. And so immediately that's what we all wanted is to, I mean, they you know, <laughs> this was the first Star Wars. They didn't know the toys were going to be as big and there weren't as many, but they certainly became popular. And uh, I think everybody was buying the Star Wars figures. And I mean, I had... Uh, you know, countless figures uh, after a while. It's just one of those things that you keep collecting. I remember I was the first kid when Empire came out who had Yoda. And so I was very excited about that. And um, uh, yeah, it was just, it was very, uh, I don't know. It just, it was such a cultural touchstone um, for all of us that, um, yeah. And it was one of those films that um, I had, uh, my babysitter is the first person I knew who actually had the videotapes of it. And so, all summer when we were being babysat, we would just watch the Star Wars films over and over and over again. And just, yeah, I've, I've seen this film so many times. Like I, I was quoting it as I rewatched it. I was listening to the, or I was whistling the themes. Like everything just was like, um, you know, old hat, knew it all. Let's talk in a moment about the, what we watched to talk about the movies. Yes, um, this is um, this movie when it came out was uh, PG and uh, for sci-fi violence and brief, mild language, which is interesting considering the films of today. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Brief, mi- brief mild. La- what is the brief, mild language in this film? I don't know. I oh, don't know. you know what it is when I'm looking? One use of hell and two uses of damn. Wow. Wow. <laughs> OMPAA. <laughs> Wow. The sci-fi violence, um, we've got, uh, it's mostly just deaths, 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 burned and smoking skeletons, uh, arm getting cut off, all that stuff. So, The arm, I get the arm. Yeah. But it's not like bloody. It's just, well, it's a little bloody. It's a little bloody. All right. All right. So let's talk about the edition, because uh, this is a film that George Lucas has, um, (laughs) quote, fondly gone back and retouched time and time again, over and over and over, Uh, whether it's uh, adding little things here and there. I I know after this film came out, around the time where they were doing re-releases, when Empire came out, they had already gone in to make changes to this film, adding in the the new title with the episode for A New Hope so that it tied in better with episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. Because when we watched this one, this was the Harmies despecialized edition. Um, that's not there. Yeah. And that was the first thing that was really interesting to uh, be reminded of is one, we're looking at the old 20th century Fox logo and the old uh, Lucasfilm logo. And then it just says star Wars, star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a relief. That was such a relief to not see (laughs) episode four. Well, which is, which is bizarre. And so, um, so anyway, let's talk for a minute though, about what Harmy's uh, Harmy has done. Yeah, Harmy uh, is a 
where is Harmy from? Like, um, Hungary? Do you remember where Harmy's from? Yeah, someplace like that. But Pete's going to find out while, while I yeah, talk about talk. it. Um, Harmy is one of many film fans um, who had really wanted the proper uh, version of Star Wars to actually be released. But George Lucas has said particularly when he did the 97 re-releases of the the original trilogy um the special editions where he added in effects he he um added the jabba scene to this film he redid uh full effect scenes sometimes completely removing models and adding cg ships in or changing the creatures in the back like there were so many changes in the film and a lot of people were up in arms that you know hey that's fine but we'd love to still have access to the original and george lucas was always of the mind nope i'm never gonna uh Uh, show that again this is the version that i uh always wanted i never had the money to do it and now i finally do and this is the only version that will forevermore exist and so a lot of people including harmy were kind of very frustrated and kind of created these groups these kind of star wars fan groups that were trying to figure out is there a way we could create a fan project version of the original trilogy where we um take the things that were as close to the original as possible from the various iterations. I think they end up using like 13 different sources, something like that, uh, to kind of do this, whether it's, it's the laser discs, they got a lot from the laser discs or the first blue or the first DVD that came out of star Wars that also had the quote original 1977 version. Um, and they, I mean, they did use largely the more modern Blu-ray releases just because they do look really clean. But then even there, sometimes they went in and recolored them to make them look more like they did in the original release. So it was this massive effort, and Harmy kind of became the focal point of the person kind of compiling all of these different sources to build this, quote, despecialized edition and make a version that the fans say is as close as you know we could get to that original edition of those three films and so um so it's interesting to kind of look at and see um you know it's, it there's a great video we'll put the link to Harmy's YouTube page in the show notes so you can watch the little video that walks through the um all the specific changes and what they did to do it it's a, it's a pretty interesting story just to kind of see how they went through that process Harmy is Peter Harmacek, uh, and he is an English teacher in Czech Republic. Uh, and <clears throat> so he was the project lead, but he was working with eight other fans and, and um, effects specialists, and they're the ones who uh, did the work together. And it is, as a derivative work, uh, this can't be legally bought or sold uh, in the United States uh, for sure. Uh, but other countries who respect those treaties, therefore, you have to find it on, uh, you know, file sharing sites. You can get it easily, but it is specific, like the language is pretty specific, that uh, according to the law, you should only have a copy of this if you legally own uh, the original material. Well, any any of the original copies of the film. Yeah, any of the original copies. You have to own them legally. And I think that's really interesting, though, in light of streaming media. Like, once you subscribe to Disney+, Plus. Are you technically a legal owner of the material? I think that's an interesting uh, question, which I, I don't know if there's Or are you answer. just perpetually renting it? Is that a month-to-month rental? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. month-to-month. That's interesting, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, the, the real trick is 
many of the uh, Harmy and team looked at many of the changes that came with the re-releases as, quote, an act of cultural vandalism on be- on the part of George Lucas. And uh, so things like, you know, it became super mean worthy, things like Han shot first, right? And the Moss Eisley tragedy, and, uh, like there were so many things in there that, that he undid um, using the, the um, you know, the high quality releases from the other sources and getting rid of all of that nonsense and java completely removing the job of the hut yeah um that's i mean and we'll continue as we watch these three films and talk about them we're going to be watching the harmy despecialized editions to kind of watch the original versions that we had first seen in theaters and uh so but i i have seen the special editions a plenty i was a projectionist when they came out so i watched them a lot and uh so it's one of those things where it'll be interesting to kind of look at these despecialized editions and just kind of talk about like what were the changes were there things that that benefited the films or are they better this way etc i think it's interesting this film was selected by the united uh, states library of congress for preservation um in 89 uh, shortly after they started doing this, I think they add like 25 films a year. And, um, but they require the original uh, version to be kept in their vaults. And George Lucas said, here, use the special edition. And um, they wouldn't take it. And so my understanding, and I, I <laughs> can't remember if this is actually true or not, but my understanding is that it still isn't in there because George Lucas refuses to give them the. Um, uh, the original print. Wow. Actually, I take, okay, so what happened, the library did, they did get a copyright deposit of the original theatrical release. Um, and I guess this is interesting um, because, I, I, I don't know, George Lucas is just such an interesting person the way that he has these um, specific things. Like he only wants, you know, this to be seen now. Which is funny because, I mean, he has changed it every time there's been another release, whether it's color timing or or little tweaks to the effects or whatever. He's just perpetually messing with them. But um, I guess they do have this copy in uh, the Library of Congress now. And you can actually, they have transferred it to a 2K scan. You can actually go view it by appointment. So that's a very interesting thing to note. Next time you're visiting the Library of Congress, make an appointment, and you can actually sit down to watch a scan of the actual original theatrical print. Wow. Yeah. You have to make an appointment. I I didn't know that you could do that at the Library of Congress. That's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it is a library, so it makes sense. (laughs) You can actually look (laughs) at stuff. You should be able to check it out, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Do they let you take them home? (laughs) That'd be awesome. You don't mind if I just take this print with me, do you? Right. (laughs) Two weeks, is that the... (laughs) Uh, so that is uh that's what we watched and um you know how would you characterize your experience with it when's the last time you watched have you ever watched this version of it i you know my buddy um when these came out he you know has been a big proponent of what harmy and team have been doing and he actually uh, burned me blu-rays of the first two films At, at the time he did that they hadn't they had just finished Empire. They had yet to start Return of the Jedi. So I actually don't have that one on Blu-ray. But um, I had it. It's funny. Like, he burned those for me. And I had them sitting on my shelf. And I kind of forgot I had them. And 
as I was getting ready for this, I'm like, oh, you know what I should watch? I should finally pull those things out. And then I actually had to dig around to figure out where the heck I kept them. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that was very exciting to actually sit down and watch, watch the, the Harmy despecialized version for the first time. I, um, I, I'm in a similar boat as you. I downloaded them. Uh, although I had watched the the first two, I downloaded the first one. I, I came across Harmy when he, they'd finished Star the Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and I had so a, about the same time. Yeah. yeah, I had a rough cut. You could download Work in Progress at the time, and so I had a rough cut, unfinished, of Return of the Jedi. Um, but I had never watched it, and so I went back and I I got Jedi for for this watch. So, um, but I had watched and tend to make it like if we're going to sit down and watch star wars that this is going to be the one that we that we watch because i can't stand job of the hut so um <laughs> then we got disney plus and it's the easy it's the easiest thing for my kids to put on so if they ever want to sit down and watch star wars or catch up with something they usually watch the disney plus version see your kids uh walked into star wars at the right time and i don't know what it is but star wars is a thing like when there's a new star wars movie in the theater like my kids are fine going and watching it they never want to put Star Wars on, though. Like any of the Star Wars films, it's not something that they will select to put on. Yeah. They have not watched a single of the shows with me. Like they have zero interest in the shows. It's very interesting how Star Wars is so um, – they're completely disconnected from that franchise. It's fun to watch, but not something that means anything. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Well, especially because, I mean, this – when this film came out, it was right in the mid-70s at the peak of the birth of blockbusters, right? Jaws came out a couple years before, which really kind of, um, you know, took off as far as what a blockbuster film could do. And then, uh, you know, this film, I think, really kind of um, kind of broke the mold of that even and and became this whole idea of the summer blockbuster. And it turned it into a thing that and also entertainment was so different at the time. It's like it was just so exciting to go see these things at the theaters. And and I think it really shifted the the mold of what studios were trying to do for a very, very long time up through to today. I think the Marvel franchise certainly um, and so many other franchises. And this actually this is a really great place to start this entire season because of how in so many ways, I mean, there have been plenty of franchises and series that came before this, but in a large um, sense what this film did really kind of birthed the whole idea of what you could do with not just a series of films, but like this franchise. And I mean, the toys and the spinoffs, the comics and the books and the, and the TV shows and lunchboxes, like it really kind of turned into this massive thing that became so much more than just a series of films. Totally. So my, uh, my kids are kids who, um, they do, love the uh the new stuff um they they uh, they like the prequel trilogy fine enough and i like the prequel trilogy only number well i like them fine enough i don't care for number one two and three are fine um and i also i think you know i'm on on team uh 789 too like i actually i like a lot of what of what they've done, but not as a whole unit. Like I like the individual films more than I like them as the, the Skywalker saga together. And I think this revisiting this film has really cemented for me, the things that I just can't stand that they, that they have tried to do um, with the overall story. And it just really, it, it just bugs me. You know what I mean? 
Really? Does it? I mean, I don't want to. Are we ready to start outing the, the, the airing of grievances? Is that does that happen now? Sure. Principally, it's the Obi-Wan grievance. Do you have any issue or any understanding with how it is OK that Obi-Wan doesn't remember droids? Well, OK, so uh, so it's, it's funny because we started this. Uh, my wife sat down with me and we were going to watch this. And as soon as we started, I'm like, oh, you know what? Let's stop. Let's just watch the last 20 minutes of Rogue One. And so we put that in because I really wanted to have fresh in my head exactly where Darth Vader and like the mental space of Darth Vader and Princess Leia from the end of that film to the beginning of this film. And it's very funny. <laughs> it says, yes, Obi-Wan, certainly. Also, when, I mean, this was a ship that, you know, was involved in the heist. Darth Vader is storming through, killing all of these rebels. And this ship gets away. And of course, in the Obi-Wan TV show, you also see Darth Vader is pretty good at using his force power to stop a ship from getting anywhere. So I'm like, well, sure okay, they didn't pull that. But that aside, they they um, they fly off. And then, of course, they directly just continue pursuing them into the beginning of Star Wars. And then the the, the rebels, when Darth Vader comes on board, he's like, this is a this is a, you know, a consular ship or whatever. And, and he's like, if this is a consul ship, then where's the ambassador? And he kills the guy and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, they're all they all know. So it yeah. plays like this really strange scene where like they all know and they all know the other person knows, but they're all kind of it's almost like now this big game of pretend that they're doing even when Princess Leia is there. So I kind of like seeing it that way, but also it's one of these things where you start running into these issues of like how well does that work now? Because even there's a point where Obi-Wan Kenobi says, I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan since oh before you were born. Which is not like, true. Well, I think they were still calling you Obi-Wan in the show Everybody's when you're giving you him a toy. <laughs> yeah. This is the challenge of going back and like reef like filling in all these gaps. And honestly, I really don't mind them doing that. I think it's kind of fun to go back and have all these stories as a part of the world. But I just, I don't know. I, I guess I just have to let it go that there are all of these minor issues when it comes to the way that the scripts are played out. The one thing that I appreciate is that they don't write things off completely like has happened in so many other franchises, like, you know, the Jurassic Park franchise were like, oh, Jurassic Park 3 never happened. Or the Halloween films were like, oh, the entirety of, you know, two through 10 never happened. It's just the first one. It's like all these things. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I find that more annoying than just these little issues where I'm just like, I, I have to just kind of write that off. I, it makes me reconsider just how to watch these movies because I, I watch them and I can't legitimately say that they would ever have intended to watch them in chronological order. I think they're meant to watch in release order um, and just consider them sort of spiritual prequel sequel, you know, films because they there's just too much. They give away too much. The central giveaway, uh, the central like reveal in the original series, which we'll get to next week in uh, Empire Strikes Back, is the big Luke Vader relationship. But we've known about that for years, right? We have to have known about that. So if you're coming new to Star Wars, that shock means nothing to you if you started with the original, with the, the prequels. And how could they have, could they 
say, we want to remove that that experience for you, new viewer? How could George Lucas possibly be okay with that? So I, I really believe, and I have to retrain myself, that the numbers mean nothing. Chronology is everything, or release chronology is everything. Have you ever done like the machete version where you start with four or five, and then after that big reveal, you use that point because there's a big break in time anyway between Empire and Jedi? You use that as a flashback point to do one, two, three, so that you can relearn, oh, he was he was Luke's father. Let's see his story and how he got to this point. And then you go back and do one, yeah. two, three, and then you come back and wrap everything up in episode six. Um, it's an interesting I, I did that's how I actually showed it to my kids um when we uh when I first screened it to them the chat room they've totally removed phantom menace because even though the music is amazing and the lightsaber duel is cool and duel of the fates it is the entire story is largely unnecessary well, that's, and, and there's yeah there there were like two versions of the of the machete version there's the extra cut version which removes phantom because phantom you really don't necessarily there like nothing in that the uh midichlorians qui-gon um, the, uh, Jar Jar largely like there's, uh, even, uh, uh, Darth Maul. So many of those things never are out- involved in the story outside of that first film. If you're just looking at the films, once you mm-hmm. jump into adding on the Clone Wars and Rebels and all these other properties, uh, even the solo movie, you really do need all of it. So, but you know what? It's, I think in so many of these different things, and I think this the, this particular trilogy that we're looking at right here really, for me, goes to show how, you know, fandom can be harmful to something, but also how when you when you really enjoy something, just take what you enjoy. If you don't like the the prequel trilogy, then just skip it. If you only like this particular trilogy, just this is your Star Wars. And that's totally fine. There is no reason everybody has to say, well, I don't like Star Wars anymore because it's these nine films and all these shows and I just don't like any of that stuff. You know, and, and that's what I think yeah. a lot of people get bogged down with. Even the Matrix trilogy quadrilogy now i guess you know a lot of people get so frustrated with it because they're just like oh god they they just ruined that whole thing it's like well then just watch the first movie you don't need to like have all of this and uh, you know i got into an argument with my uh one of my friend's kids one point because he was so adamant that no this is what they say star wars is i'm like if you don't like it then just leave it out but that's they say that that's canon do you have to watch it though? No. Let Star Wars be what you like. It's fine. And I, I think that's uh, a, an area where a lot of people in these different fandoms really struggle when these different elements become such a, uh, when the, the people who are making it say, this is what it is. And I think Star Wars is really where that happened because they started saying, oh, that other stuff is legend. And this is the only stuff that's official. And, you know, well, and this is the that is exactly the issue, Andy. And I think that's why people have to keep talking or feel like they have to keep talking about it like us. Right. Especially when you start wrapping in all the shows like, you know, it's because they tried to tie all these things in together. So we notice more critically when they don't. Right. If they're going to say we're going to try and do this thing, if we're going to release a movie that so directly takes up where the last movie ends, then it does start to to 
come part of the seams. And that's why I actually really like uh, Rogue One and the solo story. And I, I like all of those because they they uh, they're different. Right. They they pull apart less Rogue One. But the solo Han Solo uh, film, I thought, did a good job of of not being so literal, a connected piece of tissue to the rest of the series. Oh, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so, you know, I, I like that stuff when they, so that's why I think Mandalorian generally, um, generally works when it's about Mando and it's about this other side of, of the story and the galaxy, it, it generally works. Um, but I think they, I think beyond this, they, they broke the Skywalker saga by making it the Skywalker saga. Well, that doesn't mean it they're bad movies at all, but you know. Well, yeah, and I mean, we're some I of mean, them are, but we're just talking about these three. But yeah, they certainly do continue this going down the sky. I, it's like they didn't decide it's the Skywalker saga until the third trilogy when they said, oh, no, this is just the story of the Skywalkers and yeah. we're going to follow them all the way to hell come hell or high water all the way through the end of the big reveals that are nonsense and everything. And that's that's what's very frustrating how they continued it. But I think where I, I think we should backtrack a little bit and like, mm-hmm. let's just talk about I mean, this is really the birthplace of all of that. I mean, because at this point, nothing else exists. It's just this particular world that George Lucas had come up with and created. And I feel like it's um, when you look at what he did here. And I mean, you know, a, a lot of people have already talked about kind of the origins of this and how there's kind of when you look at uh, the Hidden Fortress that Akira Kurosawa did, uh, George, George Lucas used that a lot for influence and the um, uh, the power of myth and the different kind of the storytelling structures that he did, all the different archetypal characters that he uh, brought into the story. And you can it's so clear and obvious, like when you b- walk through these different characters, um, it's it's interesting, like Han Solo is the skeptic and, you know, Luke Skywalker is the hero and Obi-Wan Kenobi is the is the sage and and th- like all of them so perfectly fit the archetype. It's it's a fascinating look at that power of myth and kind of the hero mythos that George Lucas latched onto that uh, it's funny because you look at what he like the source material that he was viewing, like those old Flash Gordon serials that he even said were pretty bad stories, like they weren't great. But he he used that power of myth storytelling and he crafted something that that um, took that kind of world, but made it into something so much bigger. And I think the reason that it connects so well with people is because you can just connect so well with so many of the different characters throughout. I think so. I, I think for for each generation, there's probably the big franchise. And for us, it was it was this. I, but um, I look at my kids and their relationship with Harry Potter that are doing the same thing. I think that's the scale at which these sort of um, narrative tropes, the the and and the the power of these uh, of the myth uh, connects with viewers, and that's what makes it so powerful for me. This is how I feel like I learned storytelling was by watching Star Wars a thousand times, right? And maybe that's a good thing, maybe not. But you, know, you can it, it does feel like uh, you know with age, looking back on it, um, it it shows you how to build an an arc the the whiny farm boy turned war hero um you know it, it is it is a huge huge influence on 
personality, like cultural personality. Um, so from the very beginning, opening with a story, uh, there has been some criticism to making the audience read very first thing. And yet every <laughs> one of these movies makes the audience read. <laughs> I, I remember for, it took years for me to actually stop and read what was being said. Like I when I was a kid, I never paid any attention to it. It's a lot of words. And uh, yeah, it's and um, I, I never really got into it either. But what's interesting is it sets up the story and it very much is that in media rest sort of storytelling. Like we're coming in in the middle of a battle like we don't know what's going on. Yeah. And I think that's very exciting. It's a great way for George Lucas to kind of kick things off where we don't meet Luke for, you know, the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of the film. It's just this setup of the world that we get here. It's very clever the way that he uh, kind of, you know, patterns this idea of the story and, and comes into it this way using that text, which, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think I really read for a very long time. And I think when I finally did, I'm like, oh, Okay, so I get it. That's what's going on here. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's very funny. I, I think largely it's just because the way that he chose to do it, it made it so fascinating to watch like that. It's not just text on the screen. Like there are so many movies that you see. And it's just like, I mean, even the old Disney films, it's a page of a book. And here you're just reading kind of like once upon a time sort of thing. This is essentially that type of thing. But the way that he chose to do it, where you're looking at a starscape and it's these words like flying backward through space, it just it it, it created a visual to it that I think even if you weren't reading it, it was just like, Something cool is going on with this. And that it transitions so seamlessly with a tilt to action. Every that time, is yeah. that every time it has become, again, an iconic transition. In addition to, you know, we, and, and we say that, that the Star Wars tilt, the Star Wars wipes, all of those transitions are are associated so deeply with Star Wars, even though they're the, the, these films are clearly not the ones to, that, you know, invented them. Um, but all of those transitions bring you so closely into the fantastical world of, you know, a, a space ship with gravity and never asking the question, how do they do that? It all just happens. Uh, and that's okay. They make that okay. I never stop and think about it. Do you classify this as a science fiction story or a fantasy story? Oh, I feel like that's a trick question. I, I consider <laughs> it a science, science fiction fantasy Western. How about that? soap opera space opera it, <laughs> space drama yeah it, well it very much uh, I, I i mean i think a lot of people it feels like science fiction because of the spaceships and all of the space elements the the laser guns and the all this sort of thing but so much of the mythos of the story and even the jedis and everything feels so fantastical that i i've seen really kind of a shift in a, the way a lot of people think of this where it's not science fiction it's not like creating real science things like a 2001 type of thing where which is much more realistic science fiction um this i guess you could say is kind of science fiction but really in the world of fantasy and i i think that's where i kind of always enjoy what lucas did where he made it just feel more magical and uh that i think is something that is very exciting and it draws you in because it's just i don't know it just it's a it's a bigger more uh, creative world the way that he's created this whole space so I, I love that that vibe that he has here and uh the other element i think that we're introduced to right 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 away is the music 
it is a stunning example of using mu- music to drive camera, right? It really feels like the music is forcing transitions that otherwise wouldn't happen, um, you know, if it weren't if it weren't for the swing. This is the um, the music by Nick Winters, right? Star Wars. Yes, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I get the joke now. It's like, really, what are we doing? What's happening right now? Uh, John Williams' score is, uh, <laughs> you know, is a, a wonderful, um, uh, you know, entree to the film, and it becomes, you know, such a uh, such a momentous uh, element. There are so few pieces of this movie that don't have any sort of score behind them. Um, it is propulsive, and I think, you know, John Williams um, is one of those composers, kind of one of the the the. Um, uh, classic composers who really latched onto the whole idea of themes and creating themes for characters that you get in, in a lot of the old, um, uh, classic films. And in, uh, I think, you know, Peter and the Wolf was an influence for him when he was younger, just the way that each character kind of had their own theme. And that's something that he really built upon over his, um, his career. And, uh, I really, enjoy what he does i enjoy that type of of film score where you have so many thematic elements for the different characters for the different things that are happening or the key themes things like that that you get throughout this because it becomes so um easy to pinpoint what specifically we're thinking about or looking at in those moments and uh, you know it really i mean he, he had already been proving himself well i mean we talked about him before in jaws which was a few years before and just how iconic the music was there but that's definitely something that has continued throughout his career and not every composer does that and I, it's fine um but I love what he does. And it's funny to finally go back to this because, you know, we have already talked about King's Row um, in our uh, black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series. And here we are at this point where we're uh, circling back to kind of uh, John Williams and Star Wars and how, you know, he kind of pulled some of that music from Eric Korngold's score for that into his film here. He pulled some of uh, Gustav Holst's um, The Planets, specifically Mars, into some of the score here. So, I mean, like any composer or filmmaker or storyteller, really any artist, they are being influenced by so many sources, but it's how they they modify it and change it into their own. And you get so much of that here. And I I think the, the Holst thing is such a good example because how effectively John Williams uses that in The Last Battle, that propulsive dun, 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 you know, that kind of build that you have there, which James Horner repeats in Aliens. It it became a um, a very kind of pounding end piece for uh, many films to to come. And I mean, even um, Hans Zimmer used some elements of that in Gladiator. So um, John Williams just, I think, set a very high bar for people as to what, um, you know, film goers wanted and, uh, and how filmmakers could use the music to um you know there's there, i don't know where are you on the line as far as music um guiding you on how to feel during a film because there's a lot of that a lot of talk about that with this sort of score writing well yeah i mean it's it's sort of the same as you know uh, using a laugh track in a sitcom right like the, the letting the laugh track influence what's funny and uh, that i i feel like I feel like I have been possibly hypocritical on that point 
because I, as of right now, after watching Star Wars, I feel strongly that the score is very much a part of the narrative elements designed to make me feel a certain way about a movie and uh, should not be disregarded as such. It's another tool, just like the camera, just like the actors, just like the effects. Uh, they're all tools to create this canvas. So I'm in favor of it. If if I can use music as a way to make somebody feel something about about you know an image, why not do it? Well, and I guess I feel when it's done right, it's because the filmmaker, in this case George Lucas, has already done the work to put all of the pieces there to get me moving in that direction. And the score is just bumping me that much further. You know, I don't feel uh like I, I feel like it becomes an issue when the the filmmaker wasn't skilled enough to get me there and so they're trying to use the music to make me feel that now because the film itself doesn't do the work and i I think that's why it becomes an issue for people because they feel like well the movie doesn't do any of that it's just the music is trying to get you there and and i feel like well if the filmmaker is doing their job then you're already on the way and and so I, i guess that's where i feel you know i end up landing with that issue like i i don't think that what john williams is doing and maybe it's because of the types of filmmakers that he's working with like i don't think that he has to do that much work i think steven spielberg already is making me cry with et and and john williams is just enhancing that and same thing in this film Okay, I can see that. I also think, though, that I'm well, probably to your point, we might be in violent agreement. I think, you know, right away, (laughs) you notice right away when the mix is wrong, uh, when the music is too bombastic or too saccharine or too, you know, devious to fit with what you're seeing on the screen. And I think that's because you're not because the filmmaker already hasn't gotten you to a point where because now you're outside of the film and thinking about it. You're not in with them. Right. Right, right. And I don't I don't feel that ever in this movie. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important element. And, um, you know, it's an interesting thing because there are plenty of times in film history where the studio has been struggling with a particular film, not doing what they wanted to. And so one of their easy band-aids that they always try to do and it just it, it's such a dumb thing to do but they say let's bring in a different composer and, and get a new score done and that's one of the first things they do and i feel like it's because they want that musical band-aid to try to make people feel the way that the film is supposed to be doing it and it just it rarely works the musical band-aid yeah, the musical. Should band-aid. we? I mean, to that point, should we be using more music in this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we just have John Williams themes running through the just whole. Just John Williams story. <laughs> <laughs> Only for members. Uh, That's right. All right. the The other piece, like I, I feel like I just watched a movie that was a direct that that Star Wars directly took the hallway shootout in the very beginning um, on the consular ship. With all the guys on each side, but I, I now all of a sudden I can't place the film. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, that that he pulled that from something. I am I'm not quite sure. Well, there are a lot of movies. I mean, that are that, referenced. Well, he was influenced. I mean, George Lucas has talked a lot about the films that uh, that had influenced him over time. Whether it's the old uh, Flash Gordon things or um, the World War II films with the bombers and everything like that was an influence for him like those old war films and and so he he pulled so many different things uh, kurosawa i already mentioned even uh 
I want to say he took, he looked at like the, the Toshiro Mifune character from Yojimbo and Sanjuro and kind of pulled a little bit of that character's uh, swagger and stuff into Han Solo. And so there were a lot of these different things that, that he kind of referenced as these sorts of things um, uh, for places that he pulled from. I wouldn't be surprised if that opening was pulled from something. I'm just not quite sure specifically what. I'm just looking right now. Let's see. The Death Star assault scene was modeled after the World War II film The Dam Busters. Uh, yes. And that one, um, have you seen that? I have The Dam Busters? Uh, I have only seen the sequence, like the big, there's a big shootout, but in context of looking at this film, and it is fascinating uh, to see the way they modeled shots of the planes flying uh, and just completely mimicked that with the TIE fighters and, and the X-Wing um, assault. It is eerie. He also pulled some of the, the trench run from the bridges at Toko Ri. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is it. The opening shot of Star Wars, the the ships, it says it's a reference to the scene introducing the interplanetary spacecraft Discovery 1 in in uh, 2001. Is that? But you're talking about the well, interior, no, the hallways. I'm talking stuff, about the right? interior. Yeah. yeah, no, I know that uh, that 2001 shot is iconic. And I think it's such a great way to open this film to show the sheer size of the Empire by yeah. just, yeah, yeah. you know, giving us that long crawl over us. Uh, but no, there is this, I, you know, I'll find it. I'll post it in Discord. I feel like I just watched it, but I haven't letterboxed it yet. And my memory's failing. Um, uh, but that hallway scene is is just one of many scenes that are architected as homage to uh, other great movie classics. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and this movie is full of them. And that sometimes comes with, with its own degree of criticism. I, I was just watching the movie with, a, or I just uh, was talking to another a friend who said, have you watched Star Wars? Because I said, we're doing this film. He says, have you watched Star Wars in a while? I said, no, it's been a little while. He said, it's really bad. What? Like, oh, wow. I don't get that for sure. I don't get that. No, I, I disagree. It's an interesting perspective. It's interesting to hear. I wonder if that's um, just coming at it from like modern storytelling style, like the pacing and everything. Because I mean, this... There is an element to this that, I mean, it has a little more, I don't want to necessarily say like languid pacing, but it's, it, it doesn't feel as rushed as so many modern films do. Like it, it feels like the storytelling today, uh, like, I, I don't know, so many people have, uh, blamed MTV for kind of the fast cutting and stuff, but that, that MTV style of like insanely fast storytelling. But I think a lot of filmmakers can do it really well. I do though think that there is this expectation for films now to, to be cut fast and move fast. And maybe that is to the detriment of a lot of these older films. And even with the enhancements that George Lucas has added to this, uh, trilogy over the decades, I can see that for some people, they're still going to watch a film and go, God, what a snooze. I, you know, I mean, I guess I can see that, if, especially if you didn't grow up with it. I can, too. And it's a little stilted. You know, when you hear the characters talk to one another, it feels that that starts to feel not dated, but operatic. Right. It does. It is you know, a, an opera uh, in scale and scope. And uh, it, it would not doesn't take much for me to imagine seeing Star Wars performed at the Met and sung, you know, um, <laughs> like it's a big, big performance. And it's it, it it's designed, I think, to be sort of melodrama. Uh, so that has never really st- struck me 
sideways. Well, do you feel like that goes back to kind of using this archetypal character yeah. structure? Because I think that that's so much of what you get with the hero's journey and archetypes is that operatic sense. Like when you have an archetype, it is a like a pillar of a character type. It is a very big type of this particular version of a character. And in an opera, when you have big characters like that, it makes sense that you're going to also have this big story and it is going to turn into a very operatic thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think Han Solo is a, is a great example of that, right? He is a uh, a swashbuckling character. He is uh, <laughs> he's chaotic neutral. Uh, he's in it for himself. He's in it for the money. Uh, we have these sequences where we get to experience him making decisions in that light, right? In that to that alignment. Yes, I'm going to take this job. It's going to pay off our debt. We're going to get back to hustling and do our thing. But it's all about us. Uh, we're going to rescue. We're going to go in. We're going to turn off the the uh, tractor beam and uh, we're, rescue the princess. I'm not rescuing a princess. That's not what I'm in it for. She's rich. Suddenly that sets off another, uh, you know, adventure in the Death Star, but all fueled by his own self-interest. That makes the twist at the end when he comes back. We're all clear, kid. Blow this thing. Let's go home. Uh, that makes it a moment without seeing his stalwart uh, alignment to himself. We don't get that transition effect uh, as easily at the end when we realize he is actually um, an old softy. Yeah. You know, that's important. And those those moments are important in the movie. But they they do give these characters a uh, one dimensional feel. Right. The, the, it really is celebrating one aspect of these archetypes. And um, and th that I can see it, that's the thing to me that makes it feel even more uh, operatic because the complexity is not internal. It's external. Yeah, I'd called him the skeptic earlier, but in actuality, in the hero's journey, he is the outlaw or shapeshifter character. Mm -hmm. That's that's specifically what he is called. Uh, just a little write-up I found about it over on Screen Rant relating to that archetype. Han Solo is a critical character to Luke's journey because while while he's entertaining in his self-interested roguishness, he serves to highlight the elevated principles to which Luke has dedicated himself. His willingness to break the rules is enormously helpful to Luke, but when the going gets too tough, too dangerous, he abandons Luke's cause at first. So you can get that sense that he is here to show us a, a kind of a contrast to Luke Luke's principles, and also to potentially learn something from Luke. And so, yeah, in, in relation to that character, the archetype, it uh, he works exceptionally well. Well, and I think, yeah, that uses better words to describe what I'm talking about, the external versus internal complexity, right? Like, we don't get a lot of inner turmoil from Han, but we do get an exercise in change when we look at Han and Luke together, and Han and Luke and Leia and uh, together. That's what's great about the archetypes is these characters make great shells for who they are, but also there's there is a lot of that internal relation themselves, who they are, and external like how they're relating with these other these other archetypes. Um, yeah. Just to run through, I'm just going to read through these because I do think it's pretty interesting. The ten archetypes that we have in this film: uh, Luke is the warrior hero. Darth Vader is the shadow slash villain. Uh, the stormtroopers are the threshold guardians. R2-D2 is the herald. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, of course, is the mentor or sage. Owen and Beru Lars are the false mentors. Princess Leia is the companion. Han Solo, I already said, is the outlaw or shapeshifter. C-3PO is the child. And Chewbacca is the friendly beast. 
the friendly beast. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, because it, it, in the archetypes, there are often yeah. these animal guides. It says the the it's based on the animal guides that help help the hero find their way, with a secondary benefit of showing us that nature itself is symbolically on the hero's side. Yeah. So, and our friendly beast kills people, rips their arms off, rips their which arms, we, off. which we don't get to see for many many a film. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, then let's let's talk just uh, about. Uh, you want to talk about your take on some of the characters, our principal characters? Yeah, the characters and and actors. We, we talked about yeah. So Han, we have uh, obviously. Um, it's funny that you start with Han Harrison. Yes, Harrison, I, of course, and that that is funny that I start with Han. But he, you know, he's my favorite. This whole this whole uh, nine films, it's a it's a character arc around this smuggler and his. Journey. That's right. That's right. I mean, He's we totally do get him back favorite. as a ghost at the end. <laughs> all, all I wanted growing up was to be, uh, for Han Solo to legitimately get a lightsaber, right? And when I saw Empire Strikes Back, you know, spoiler, all I wanted was him to keep Luke's lightsaber. Like, Luke could die then, and that would be fine, because Han got his <laughs> lightsaber on Hoth. That's what I wanted, was Han with a lightsaber. And I think some of the comics, actually, Han manages to have a lightsaber there for a while but um i i'm not uh i'm not sure so that's uh harrison ford so you you uh, as a kid you prime. identified with with him more yes okay that's good to know yeah. i i identified with luke so it's inter- it's always interesting like where you come in because my sister actually also identified with han solo more so oh, than yeah, Carrie well, Fisher. That, che- right? that checks out yeah i haven't even met your sister that many times and that totally well she's out. always been the cooler one so it totally makes sense <laughs> <laughs> But you're the hero, right? But you're I'm the, the hero of my own story, yes. Of, of my own, own story. Of my own nine film saga. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, okay. What I love about Mark Hamill in this film is he he's such a whiny little thing, and he, he does so well at it. And what I find so interesting about Mark Hamill as an actor is this, uh, I mean, he had acted before this, but it seems like... Um, this film so ended up defining him for such a long period of time. He really seemed to struggle getting like breaking out of that, you know? And, uh, I, I actually, I take it back. This was his first one. I was for some, my head said Corvette summer was first, but Corvette summer actually was after this. Um, it, it didn't seem until, uh, like he kind of came in vogue again when, um, you know, our age group who had grown up with him then wanted to start putting them in their their projects. And when you started seeing him pop up, because he did voice work for so long, but really it's like finally he started coming back into different film projects. And then of course he came back in the in the the uh, the final trilogy, which was great. But I, I I always loved him as this person. But yeah, it's so interesting how he became so kind of stuck in this particular character for um, and and couldn't break free like so many of the other people could uh, why is that uh, harrison ford it's, it was almost effortless this was the movie this was one of the movies that gave him a, a presence and everybody wanted him immediately because of that on-screen sort of magnetism charisma is my sense do you th- well do you think it's also because harrison ford had been i mean mark hamill had been in tv but mm-hmm. but harrison ford had been in movies before um, yeah. you know, I mean, do you think that there's something to that where like he had already, I mean, nothing too big. I mean, he had American graffiti, small part in the conversation and stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just curious if there's, um, an element of 
that stuff that he seemed more like a movie star and Mark Hamill seemed like, oh, he's a TV actor who's, you know, getting into movies now. Well, that's that's exactly my thinking, right? That that he, um, you know, he, he had enough other stuff, uh, but none, nothing that really put him on the map. Even American Graffiti is, you know, I I don't think anybody's going to say, oh, you know, that movie American Graffiti that gave Harrison Ford his start. I don't believe that. Well, uh, I, I, it I, was it was Star Wars. It, no, it was certainly Star Wars, but I do think that um, George Lucas had. Um, obviously that's where they first worked together was American graffiti. But I think that there was an element where he felt because that was kind of a role that just seemed like, okay, there's something there with this guy. Uh, you know, we could potentially see him in other projects. Like he had been in a a number, like starting in 1966, dead heat on a merry-go-round as an uncredited bellhop and, and then love and a time for killing journey to Shiloh getting straight. So he had been in a number of these films and then like the conversation again, he was in kind of that Coppola, Lucas, uh, Spielberg crowd. So it makes sense that by the time, uh, I mean, it pops up in apocalypse. Now, by the time Raiders comes around, it makes sense that, uh, Spielberg already knew the guy and said this, this guy, you know, this Han Solo, uh, actor, you know, let's get him. And of course, Lucas was involved too. So, um, I mean, he, he, yeah, there were a lot, I I don't know. I've never seen stuff like Hanover street, which was uh, 1979 force 10 from Navarone 1978. Um, what, I mean, have you seen much of his films, not star Wars, um, up before Raiders, like from the sixties through 1980? Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously apocalypse now I've seen force 10 from Navarone. Um, and, um, obviously American graffiti, but uh, apart from that, I don't, I, I, I haven't. And it would the conversation you've seen. Yeah. The conversation, um, Jeez, and maybe the Frisco Kid? Did I see the Frisco Kid? That's that Pretty Western sure. comedy uh, with Gene Wilder. I never ended yeah. up watching that one, but um, right. I know it's out there. I, I don't really have much of a memory of it. So I, you know, I don't really, but I also know that looking at Harrison Ford, between Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill at the time, it, it's much easier for me to see Harrison Ford stepping out and becoming um, becoming something special. And and Mark Hamill took a while. Yeah. Harrison Ford had a little bit of more of that movie star look. Uh, Mark Hamill, I think, fit the character so well. And I, I th- that's maybe the challenge is, is Mark Hamill felt like the perfect character actor to play that part. And it's harder to see him as, oh, he's he's a movie star. And there are more interesting characters out there for a guy like Harrison Ford, right? The, it, especially a guy like Han Solo. Yeah. You know, the guy who played Han Solo could also very easily play Deckard. The guy who played Han Solo could very easily play Indiana Jones, right? I, I can't see Mark Hamill in any of those. No, uh, it is interesting that he, I mean, he does the big red one, you know, a few years later, a big war film that um, uh, uh, Sam Fuller did. Um and then you like Slipstream, which was a later, like 1989, uh, uh, kind of a, it's definitely a cult classic sci-fi film, uh, you know, a little more, he's a little more of the antagonist. And so like he was trying to do that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, but yeah, I don't think he, um, was ever able to kind of latch onto the same type of career. I, I think that largely his popularity now is because also he is such a Twitter presence. 
which is awfully fun. Yeah. But you can be an like he is in his own way an icon, right? The guy sure, who yeah. played Luke Skywalker and the guy who's the voice of the Joker for decades and that, yeah. the guy right, I mean, he he is in his own way an icon in these fandoms and you can do that without being a movie star and and still a very interesting guy. Yeah. It just it, it just I think he wanted to be a movie star like Harrison Ford. And I think it took a while for yes. him to figure out who he was going to be in the acting world. Yeah. 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 Carrie Fisher, uh, she was an easy one to fall in love with right out of the gate. Oh, God, she was something, huh? Well, you know, you got to love that kind of, I mean, she's just the idea of this, this female character who doesn't necessarily, I mean, she does need to be rescued, but she's not there just to be rescued. Like she's as tough a fighter as they are. And I, I love that uh, Princess Leia always kind of had that side to her. Me too. And, you know, she was such an interesting, you know, performer. I have you, you finished Obi-Wan, right? The show. Uh-huh. Uh, this is another, this is one of the characters between that that they i think have treated well between the small screen and the and the original trilogy i think that little girl absolutely i can see her trajectory toward the princess leia that we meet here and um and, and i so i i really enjoy the treatment of the character of leia organa um and carrie fisher's portrayal as the the young woman who takes no guff is is wonderful and it's not as you say it's not the damsel in distress character it's a character that you can that that as a dad i loved watching with my daughter to say like look look at the princess who kicks ass look at the princess who figures out how to get everybody out of the out of the prison block firefight look at the princess who you know leads a revolution um i i thought that was wonderful Speaking of issues that we had, did you have any issues when she's like on her recorded message for Obi Wan, where she's like, "You helped my father during the uh, the the Clone Wars." Yeah, not bring up. Oh, and remember, you also saved me that time. You helped me. Yeah, that <laughs> when one I was time kidnapped. When we were in that cave. <laughs> I got kidnapped, and we traveled all over. To, we are you the same friends. guy? Because <laughs> is there a Ben Kenobi that I don't know about? <laughs> Come on! Come on! <sighs> Yeah, uh, it's it's it. Yeah. yeah, the perpetual challenge of the decisions to to write past stories. I think you're always going to be battling the dialogue of the the stories that take place later that were made earlier. Yeah, yeah. But I love Carrie Fisher, and uh, it's just it's so great watching her here. I'm uh, just kind of seeing this uh, this actress just owning the role. I love her. She was uh, my favorite. I, you know, I I love her in everything she does because she's fantastic, but uh, or everything she did uh, because she's fantastic. But my favorite guest appearance that she had ever done was on 30 Rock. Do you remember that episode? Uh, you didn't probably watch no. 30 Rock. She was extraordinary playing a TV writer who had aged out of TV, but she wrote very edgy, funny sketches for a, a TV comedy show in the 70s. And, and uh, so there's this... Um, there's this bit where she takes her. She, you can tell she's fallen completely out of grace and lives in a place called, I think I can't remember, it's like Little Croatia, a little area in New York City. And uh, there's just open, like people shooting each other on the street. But the best line in the movie is, uh, is uh, uh, Alec Baldwin, who says in advice, uh, never follow a hippie to a second location, speaking of Carrie Fisher. So whenever I think of Carrie Fisher, I immediately think, oh, Never follow a hippie to a second location. That's the whole story. That's great. Great, great, great episode. One of one of the sad things that uh, 
you know, was unfortunately going on, likely still is going on in Hollywood, let's be honest. Um, they did require Carrie Fisher to lose 10 pounds uh, before that was a, before they would officially cast her. That was a condition yeah. of the yeah. casting. And uh, I know that became a big issue for her as this uh, trilogy progresses. And it's, you know, it's frustrating. I mean, geez, you hear the stories that happened to Judy Garland and you think, well, the system's figuring itself out and it's getting fixed. And then you hear these stories it's like, well, okay, there's still, it still is a crass mess with these people and the decisions they make. So, do you remember Carrie Fisher in Shampoo? I remember Shampoo, but I don't remember, the, I don't remember the film super well. I don't remember her in the film. I don't either, but it was one of those that that was her first bit. Um, her first uh, film part was uh, Shampoo. She was in. Um, Debbie Reynolds and the Sound of Children TV movie as Girl Scout in 1969. Um, but the shampoo was her first and then this. Uh, I need to check out uh, Postcards from the Edge because I've always heard that's a really uh, great look into um, her relationship with her mother because that story is largely, you know, her and, and uh, Debbie Reynolds and kind of their story. Yes. Um, so that's something I'm really curious about. But, you know, I love her. She's, you know, of course, uh, you know, it, with Tom Hanks in The Man with One Red Shoe. Um, just another person who has been and again, they reunite in the burbs. They're just she's she's done so many different types of projects. And, of course, she became very well known as as a rewriter, a writer and rewriter. And that was something that was very much her um, her thing. And, you know, so she's just she's always had a lot of spark. And uh, she's just a person that I, I really, really enjoy. It's very sad. And don't forget that... her, her hit part in Blues Brothers. Well, yes, which we talked about as our one of our member bonus episodes. That's right. You were saying it's very sad. Just like the whole when we lost her and her mother so shortly afterward. <sighs> it, was, it was a very tragic period. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, so those are uh, the big, those are the big three kids. Yeah. Of course, we have Sir Alec Guinness. Uh, we've done a whole Alec Guinness series. I mean, we love this guy, uh, you know, and uh, what I love about that particular series is that we look at those older films of his because, I mean, he really was known <laughs> so much more for so many other types of films before he went on to this character, which he kind of, you know, it's funny hearing actors like this talk about these films. Or they, they're just like, yeah, he was in that. And, you know, I don't really, you know, it was just this fairy tale rubbish is kind of how he described the film. But, but he, he felt that the morals were fine and the money was fine. And so he was fine to kind of keep doing it. But it was not something he was ever like, he just really looked at it as a paycheck. And it's just very funny because I feel like his character is so iconic for people like us. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, it's okay. I'm okay that he's not as into it as we are because I just, I really love this character. I do. I, I do. It's, it's sometimes hard when your fandom is tested by the people who created it and they're just not as into it as you are. <laughs> that gets just the work. Uh, and I get why people kind of get frustrated with, with him and the character uh, in hindsight, uh, given some of the things he said about it. But you know, it's a great character. The old wizard in the dunes. It's a very frustrating. That's the thing with fandom, because, I mean, there's a lot of that guff right now about some of these actors who are popping up in these TV shows like Ahsoka or Andor who haven't gone through and watched like all of the TV episodes and stuff. And, and the fans 
um, get very vocal and upset about their the actors who are playing these, you know, big characters who haven't, quote, done the research and um, or, or just they don't they don't connect to it the same way that that the fans do. And it's I think that ends up becoming a very uh, big issue. And it's it's a very frustrating thing because like I'm a fan, but I feel like as a fan, it's like, you know, he, whether he is a fan of the property or not, it really doesn't matter. It's what he brought to the table and how he plays the character. And and that's, for me, the core element. And I, I love this character, and I, I don't really care. I think it's kind of funny that he, he didn't think of it as that much of a thing. But, um, yeah, you know, fans fans can be, um, uh, you know, uh, very uh, malicious and, and frustrating at times. Yeah, yeah. There is a, there is a certain subset of fandom that is entitled uh, and that's that's hard to witness, yeah. uh, especially when a, a property gives such joy. So, you know, I think this is another one of those when we're talking about problems with the character. Obviously, we have some issues of uh, with uh, Obi-Wan and thanks to all of the other Obi-Wan stuff, uh, you know, in the hands of Ewan McGregor and the, char- the way the character is written. Um, it's it is a struggle sometimes because I think so much of what this movie started has been either disregarded or or you know retconned for uh, other properties yeah I, i'm you know it it's frustrating when because it feels like it feels like something that could have been resolved uh in in my head but you know i wasn't wasn't in the writer's room it's it's fine it just feels like an, a, a a tough shot to watch them miss yeah 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 um are there any other specific actors that we want to call out? I mean, you know, it's a great cast. Peter Cushing, Anthony Daniels, Kenny Baker, Peter Mayhew, David Prowse, James Earl Jones. Uh, I mean, so many others. I, I don't feel like we need to dig into all of them, but um, unless you wanted to say anything specific about any any of them. No, I mean, I think, you know, Anthony Daniels and um, Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew, Kenny Baker, David Prowse, right? Those characters, uh, because they played characters behind artifice, I think, are really interesting because it was, you know, it it was so much of their work you know Kenny Baker for you know leads the pack at, at giving identity to this incredible machine that has personality and liveliness and fun and ingenuity cleverness like it just is is wonderful his role as R2D2 and set the stage for creating a little robot that goes down in in history um and and that's that's hard to do right that kind of you know the way he makes the thing move and shake and um you know i would say him and obviously the team that puts all the whistles and voice together well, i was going to say i, I think i don't is. think you have that full character until ben burt comes in and you get yep. all the beeps yep, and yep. squeaks cuz i think the noises that r2 makes are uh, such a key part of it such a key part absolutely and to the same point the the as the actor anthony daniels like to bring such life to c3po um it's um it's pretty special uh their performances and what they were able to do um so you know i just wanted to make sure that's out there and uh, obviously peter mayhew is chewbacca again taking these masks and giving them identity and personality is is real craft yeah well i think at this point isn't anthony daniels um, I may be wrong, but isn't he the only one who actually has been in every one of the nine 
um, films. I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah, I can't remember if that's complete. Obviously, they've um, uh, R two has always been there, but um, not uh, always as yeah. And same thing with like the characters are there, but the people doing them, like Peter Mayhew, unfortunately passed away, and um, or he retired, and then he he passed away in twenty nineteen. And yeah, when did Kenny Baker pass away? He passed away in twenty sixteen. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I think Anthony Daniels is the only one who's managed to be in all nine of them. Um, that's pretty impressive. I, I got a little, uh, irked with Anthony Daniels when he was, uh, a little snarky, um, <laughs> when he was, uh, when he went, I think it was the screening of Rogue One, which he, you know, was on the red carpet for and, uh, was talking to, uh, Alan Tudyk, who plays, uh, K2SO. And, uh, there was a little bit of, um, uh, an attitude that Anthony Daniels had toward Alan Tudyk because, well, you didn't have to be in it. You were just a voice, like very kind yeah. of a little snarky about that, you know? And so I'm, I can see it, but it, it's definitely yeah. there. Yeah. And um, we mentioned Ben Burt and the sound design for the robots. Something we haven't really gotten into much and geez, I mean, we've been going on for a while, but one of the key parts of the film is, of course, the effects. And and it's, I mean, obviously the actors are such a critical part of it. But, I mean, Lucas created this world, designed this whole thing, started up, you know, uh, his his company, the special effects house of ILM, and kind of like designed this whole world with this team using like Macquarie's paintings, uh, Ralph Macquarie, and, and came up with this whole thing of the sound design and the effects and the model work and everything, and really kind of built something that people just hadn't seen in this scale before. And I think that's one of the things that really makes the film also stand out, where it's not just some cheesy, you know, space set film that is just kind of like, looks like a bunch of, um, you know, floating um, you know, toasters, it actually felt very authentic. And I think that's another key part of the reason that this thing works so well. Because of the people who had such an affinity for their for their jobs. I mean, there's the the, the act of creating sound. The, it, some of my favorite behind the scenes material on this on this film is watching them out there field recording yeah. uh, the different sounds of nature and the sort of Anthropocene soundscape that make up the texture of sound for this movie. And um, in conjunction with Apple, they recently released a short, a black and white short that was just a tour of the historic uh, sound library that they have created on their uh, on their services. Brand new kind of a thing. It was released last month um, where they they walk through um, and play through the the sounds that you can get for all of the droids, all of the ships, all of the the earthly effects that that editors can now bring into the overall soundscape and it's just it's legendary and they have all of the original hammering the the um the high tension lines to hold the uh, power poles up you know to create the laser blasts and uh i mean it it's just unreal the work that they did to to create something out of nothing uh, for this story have you seen that that tour? I love watching. Yeah, yeah. Them. Oh, absolutely. Like <laughs> that's, that's what I always go to is when they're hitting the the yeah. high tension lines to create that sound. And you know, part of me, 
you know, had fantasies at that point. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, I just want to do that. I want to walk around and, re- and hit things and record strange sounds and come up with things that that become cool sound effects. Um, of course, <laughs> it's not the path I took, but I like that. That is exactly the thing that stuck with me. And I always find the idea of what sound designers do as they're crafting these things and pulling things. Like another example, not related to this film, but the Terminator 2 film, when that truck is moving toward the camera and the engine revs and they add in a subtle lion roar to kind of give it that extra oomph. Right. It's like, God, those little things are such tricky little things that they can add that just give it this really enhanced moment that does something unique. I love that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Some of the uncredited chewy noises were from Patula and Pooh and Tarek. And I think those are all crew dogs. That's my <laughs> that's my hunch. I can't find the actual pedigree. <laughs> uh, but uh, the and of course, you know, the visual effects. This is one area where I think the um, the re-releases did credit to the film. The retouches they did on the spaceships like the the actual x-wings in space i think are generally good i like watching the space battles better in the especially in the the um you know in the despecialized edition they got all the they got a lot of the credit of the um you know updated space effects from the original i do notice in the original i like i have a memory of the original plates moving across the space field the uh yeah i i just think all of those kinds of touches and retouches were solid i don't mind those sorts of retouches when they're cleaning up mats yeah i know that they go in and actually like completely like periodically will remove a spaceship and just build a cg ship instead Mm mm-hmm I'd really rather just like clean up the model work. Let it be a 1977 film with great model work. You don't have to just make new CG stuff for it, you know. And and those are some elements that um, that do frustrate me that they do, but generally they do it well. So at least when I'm watching it, I don't find it like um, obnoxious. The hero shot of the the squadron coming in over the uh, around Yavin toward the Death Star is, I think, really great right around that sun whatever it is they're coming around is is really great and i think in the disney plus version they are cg ships i think that's an entire cg escape uh and i i buy it like i like the look of it i think it's i think it's great it is one of those changes i mean obviously they're doing something to it um it's not as egregious as some of the more obnoxious things and um and so to that end i i don't mind so much uh, same thing, like when you see the ships taking off, the X-Wings all taking off from the moon of Yavin, where you actually have, uh, in this version, it was kind of funny to, funny to watch, where you just see little white lines of, of the ships like taking off into the atmosphere. You don't even see a ship. It's just little tiny lines zipping off. And in this, in the uh, special editions, you actually see ships all, all flying off. So, I mean, they, they do some serious work in those. Yeah, right. I don't know. I. After having revisited this, I'm really more of the mind to just just like, I mean, even Spielberg, who notoriously went back and and made some egregious changes to E.T., is now re-re-releasing it for its 40th anniversary in theaters. And he's putting the guns back in their hands instead of the walkie-talkies. Like he's going like he understood what people were saying. And it's like, you're right. 
I should go back and fix it the way that, and just leave it yeah. how it was. It was too far. And there, yeah, there are elements in this that I wish that, that Lucas, I was kind of hoping when Disney bought Lucasfilm that they would re-release the originals because, I mean, let's face it, it's another opportunity for them to make more money. Why wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. But I feel like there's probably some contract in there with Lucas where they're not able to, or maybe when he dies, I don't know what it is, but I hope at some point we do actually get official re-releases of the actual original theatrical versions of the films. Which do you think will come first? A a re-release of the actual theatrical versions or a complete remake? I don't think they'll ever remake them. I don't think that this, it's it's not a franchise that I think it gets watched too often for remakes. Like, I think there are stories out there like The Magnificent Seven um, where there's a it's a time for a remake because you know it's still there but but audiences aren't necessarily jumping at the chance to um or or people aren't regularly going and just talking about the magnificent seven revisiting that film it's not a cultural icon and i don't think like films like this harry potter hunger games i don't think are likely going to get remakes that's this will actually be an interesting conversation to kind of continue having through this entire season mm-hmm. of each of these. In fact, we should save this for our retake episodes. We do a retake episode at the end of um, each series where we, uh, for it's a, one of our member bonus episodes, where we talk about the series as a whole and look at kind of, um, you know, how everything's related, what our thoughts on the whole series is. That's, this will be an interesting conversation to have in those retake episodes of like, is this a, a franchise or a series that could potentially be remade in some capacity? Yeah, I I think that's a funny question, only because I just read an article, uh, an editorial piece calling for, uh, you know, a remake of the original Star Wars trilogy, if only to go about integrating characters from these this extended Star Wars universe and, uh, you know, that were important to the building of the rebellion and are never heard from again (laughs) that are just gone. Yeah. so uh, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting proposal. I'm not in favor of it, but it's an interesting proposal. I, I They're the same people who want to make a new Vietnam film with James Dean. Yes, like, that's right. There are people right. out there who look at all of these as opportunities to just make more money. And, uh, you know, I, I think there is a time and a place for remakes. Westworld, the film that Michael Crichton originally did, had issues. It was a very interesting concept, but it never fully became a cohesive thing that's the sort of thing that's ripe for reimagining retelling yes. remaking um this i just can't imagine anyone would ever be on board with it yep Agreed. Uh, well i i mean there's so many different angles and directions we can take with the conversation but i think um largely you know a lot of that has been talked about in different capacities um in different places i think we're fine i you know i think we've covered a lot here i i think uh we should just move forward and uh, continue unless you have any other particular points you want to bring up. I don't. I'm I'm glad it has felt like a hole in our collection of movies that you and I have talked about personally that we haven't talked about this trilogy. So I'm glad we're getting it on the list, if not a little bit late. I'll tell you, it's going to be difficult when we, um, another member bonus episode for those listening who aren't members. We also do flick chart um, 
um, re-ranking episodes or in our retakes, we actually add movies to our flick chart where we rank all of the movies that we've talked about. And these will be interesting ones to see where they land on our chart because I imagine they're going to be fairly high. Yeah, I agree. Yep, yep. All right, everybody, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Francesco D'Andrea, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Sequels and remakes, Andy. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, this is going to this is a section we may need to evaluate if it makes sense to kind of continue in this particular <laughs> season. I think the um, answer is just yes. The, and then we talk about yes, the, the entire point of this is yes. <laughs> uh, and we've already talked about remakes. Yeah. Um, but or maybe we save it for the final one of each one, because did it continue? Is there a, another, you know? movement for more of these films to go you know yeah right right so maybe we do it in that way all right so in that light how did it do at award season uh, it did really well for itself 63 wins 29 other nominations um at the oscars this was uh, a big year for it it had one two three four five six seven eight nine ten nominations and, and then it also won a special achievement award that was what was throwing me because they threw that like in the middle of the list it was a very strange list that they put together uh ben burt did win a special achievement award for the creation of the alien creature and robot voices uh sound effects that he did the film won best art direction set decoration best costume design best sound best film editing best uh, effects visual effects and best music original score it did lose out on um, four others, and of course, it lost out on Best Actor in a Supporting Role for uh, Alec Guinness, who lost to Jason Robards in the film Julia, which this is going to be an interesting one to kind of continue going through because so many of them, it's like Star Wars is the obvious answer that should have won. Julia is not in conversations anymore. It's an interesting film, but Alec Guinness should have won for this. Mm-hmm. Um, Likewise, George Lucas was nominated for Best Director. This went to Woody Allen, um, which (laughs) I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, It was nominated also for Best Picture, lost to Annie Hall, uh, Woody Allen. And um, the writing, George Lucas was nominated for Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen, lost to Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman for Annie Hall. But I do want to read this little bit because Woody Allen notoriously is not somebody who uh, is a fan of the Oscars. And he he doesn't even go. He doesn't go to the Oscars. He's always playing in, you know, his uh, band, whatever. Um, this was a year later. Um, somebody asked Woody about winning. And what he said is, quote, I know it sounds horrible, but winning that Oscar for Annie Hall didn't mean anything to me. I have no regard for that kind of ceremony. I just don't think they know what they're doing. When you see who wins those things or doesn't win them, you can see how meaningless this Oscar thing is. 
He's a real, he's a real treat. I, I love the fact that he continues to get nominated and win yeah. awards for so many decades after having said all of that about it. People yeah. are just like, still, he's just so great. <laughs> of course, now I can't imagine him ever getting into the conversation again after uh, so much controversy. I love Annie Hall. I think it's a fantastic film. Very creative, very original. I can see so many reasons why it would win. The other nominees, The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Annie Hall, and The Turning Point. Uh, it's a it's an interesting lineup. Star Wars is the one that has absolutely lasted. It's the iconic yeah, film. So, right. uh, where are you on Annie Hall? I I like Annie Hall, but I think I'm more bullish on more Woody Allen films than you are. I think Annie Hall's great. Annie Hall's fantastic. There are uh, there's a period of Woody Allen films where I just think that they are absolutely genius films. I have a lot of problems with the guy. Some of the films I have problems with because of the guy. I feel like there's almost too much of him in the films. Yeah. But largely, I really enjoy him. I I, I haven't enjoyed him for uh, several decades now. I, I just haven't. There hasn't been a whole lot I've liked. But when you go back to stuff like this, I, I really love some of these films in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Uh, back to awards. Um, at the BAFTAs, uh, John Williams won the Anthony Asquith Award for Film Music. It won Best Sound. It was nominated for Best Costume, Film, Film Editing, and Production Design and Art Direction, but didn't win those. At the, the What's interesting, at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, the Saturn Awards, we have uh, talked about countless times on the show. Um, it has been in the running various times in four different seasons. Obviously, the first time when it came out, and then in 97, it won a special award for its 20th anniversary um, of the re-releases. In 2005, it won a Saturn Award for the best DVD collection. And again, in 2012, it won yet another Saturn Award, or it was nominated that time for the collection, the Blu-ray collection. Mm-hmm. But back in uh, 1977, it won for Best Science Fiction Film, Alec Guinness for Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, George Lucas, who actually tied with Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters. And same thing, John Williams won Best Music, tying with himself for Close Encounters. George Lucas won Best Writing. The film won Best Costumes, Best Makeup, Best Special Effects, Outstanding Editing, Outstanding Sound, Outstanding Art Direction, Outstanding Set Decoration, Outstanding Cinematographer. It was a special award. And then losing... A lot of the acting, Harrison Ford for Best Actor, Mark Hamill for Best Actor, Carrie Fisher for Best Actress, and Peter Cushing for Best Supporting Actor. It's interesting to kind of see uh, that the acting is not what came through for that. Um, the Guinness Book of World Records, are you, are you familiar with that, Pete? This is, is this the first time we've had Guinness in the awards section? I think it is. I really do think it is. Uh, Guinness World Record Awards, 1977. John Williams uh, got one for the best-selling single of instrumental music. Was that the theme from Star Wars? It was the 1977 disco arrangement of music to Star Wars entitled Star Wars Theme slash Cantina Band. And it remains the only instrumental single to have reached platinum status, according to the uh, Recording Industry Association of America, having sold more than 2 million units. The track featured on the album Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk, which outsold the original movie soundtrack and was also certified platinum. I love that. I love that that's the one. That it's the yeah. the cantina song. It's the it's the disco arrangement. In disco. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that was well, the that's... first. There's more, Pete. Okay. 1997, best uh, biggest opening weekend ever for a re-released film. 2007, 
It won for most spoofed film series. There have been direct references to Star Wars in more than 170 feature films, TV shows, comics, adverts, and online videos. Uh, Also, most successful action figure range. As of 2007, the Star Wars line from Kenner Hasbro generated more than $9 billion in sales. 1978 alone, the first range of Star Wars figures sold more than 40 million units, earning in excess of $100 million. Then the Guinness World Record uh, for in 2011, the largest fortune made from a film franchise. <laughs> wow. In 2012, the most prolific video game series based on a licensed property. In 2013, the highest box office film gross average for a male director, uh, George Lucas, for um, all of his films. It takes all the films. Highest box office film gross average. In 2015, the highest box office gross for a screenwriter. In 2016, the most successful book series based on a film series. So that's how many times this film has been entered into the Guinness World Records. That's amazing. Isn't that insane? It is. It, it, I wish we could just put this also. I've got the disco track playing in the background as you read that, and it's an amazing sound bed for... Well, make sure I have the link because we will throw it into the uh, the show notes for sure. <laughs> Last but not least, Pete, I wanted to throw this in because it yeah. made me laugh. At the Writers Guild Awards, this film was nominated for Best Comedy, written directly for the screen. <laughs> you know, what? sometimes these, these awards don't know where to throw things because they only have Best Drama and Best Comedy. That's really funny. So, of course, they just said, oh, well, it's not a drama. Let's just put it in comedy. It's like it's so doesn't make any sense. But that it's it's like the Golden Globes. That's yeah. where they throw it. That's right. Uh, uh, it was up against, of course, uh, the Goodbye Girl Slapshot and Annie Hall, which took it. So. Star Wars, best comedy nominee from 1977. <laughs> so anyway, those are the those are the awards I had. Okay. Uh, well, I feel like the uh, biggest fortune from a film franchise <clears throat> Guinness record probably uh, probably is the the leading indicator of how you're going to answer this next question. But how did it do at the box office? How do you even start to answer that question? Yeah, well, movie? I'll tell you. And then I also have a game for you. Oh, this will be oh fun. Oh, my God. So, uh, well, people, you know, wonder why Lucas was able to create his empire. He uh, he started this film with a budget of $5 million from Fox for the movie. That $5 million eventually turned into $8 million, And over the course of production and post-production, crept up to its final budget of $11 million for the movie, which is only $46.5 million in today's dollars. When you think about, like, what a film costs today, I mean, it's an incredible bargain. It's insane. The movie premiered on May 25th, 1977, which was a Wednesday, but that same week, uh, John Waters' Desperate Living and, of course, Smoking the Bandit opened, along with a live-action version of Cinderella. It shouldn't be any surprise this film opened in the number one spot, which, weirdly, it only held three weeks before being unseated by, of all things, The Deep. Remember that one? I do. <laughs> yes. Of course, this is the film that had the staying power. It did grab the number one spot again in its seventh week, and then it held it for 15 more weeks. This film replaced Jaws as the highest-earning film in North America in just six months of release, and a year later took the worldwide record as well. It looks like the film played in theaters for well over a year, then was reissued in 1979, 1981, and 1982. Of course, that's the year E.T. would break the record as the highest-grossing film of all time. 
This film went on to earn almost $461 million domestically over its lifetime and almost $314.5 million internationally for a total gross of almost $3.3 billion in today's dollars. That means the film had an adjusted profit per finished minute of $27 million, earning back more than 70 times its budget and putting it just behind Gone with the Wind in the number two spot in our database and at the North American box office when adjusted for inflation. So our database mirrors the North American box office at this point, is what you're saying. Just, yeah, because we've talked about those top two films. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yep. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. We're doing, yeah. we're doing the Lord's work, Andy. <laughs> All right, so I have a little game for you, Pete. All right, let's play your game. Highest grossing films uh, adjusted for inflation, Pete. Um, the game that I have for you is, and I can help you out with, uh, with some of it if you want, the timeline for highest grossing film. What would you say was the first film that they would have marked as, oh, this film has the highest grossing box office at this point? I feel like it's a silent film. We just, oh, a silent film. I was going to say Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's, it, well, we're chronologically, you know, starting before that. So it is the birth of a nation. That's the first film that they oh. marked as highest box office, 1915. Okay. Uh, it held that spot until, as you just said, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind held that spot until, what would you say would be the next film that would take that spot? I, well, I'm clearly going to need a hint. Yeah, I'll tell you. We've covered it on a speakeasy episode. We have? In the 60s. Big 1960 musical. Sound of Music? The Sound of Music. Okay. All right. The Sound of Music became the, the the first film to break Gone with the Wind's record. Really? Gone wow. with the Wind was re-released in 1971, turned around and, and broke the Sound of Music's record and, and took the spot again. Just a few years later, 1972, a little film came along that we've talked about, and that became the new highest grossing film. What would that film be? 1972. Are you being sarcastic now? No. A little film that, does it know it was you, Fredo? Yes, <laughs> Well, was it The Godfather? It was The Godfather. Yeah. The Godfather. All right. Godfather took that spot. And then you should know what took the spot from The Godfather a few years later. Are we talking about Jaws yet? Jaws. Okay. We are talking about Jaws. Good. And that was broken, I just said, by Star Wars, which was then broken by E.T. Okay. What would have broken E.T.'s record? Um, it's the highest grossing film. Was it? I mean, because it was just Jedi that came out right after that. Was it Jedi? It wasn't. It wasn't. E.T. held it for a, almost a decade. Actually, just over a decade. Oh. Okay. Was it... Um, I will give you a hint. It was the same director as E.T. <laughs> oh, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. Spielberg. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, he only held the record for a few years before it was broken again by a very, very big film. When you say very, very big, what are you talking about? It's a very big film, as in this film was a cultural touchstone. Well, because the the, only, the next movie that I can think of is uh, was Hanks, uh, Forrest Gump. Did Forrest Gump get on the list anywhere? Nope. That was nope. not it? That didn't break the list. That did not top Jurassic Park for a highest grossing film. Then I need another hint. Think of uh, Boat. <laughs> <laughs> Titanic. Uh, Titanic. Titanic took the record from Jurassic Park. What took the record from Titanic more than a decade later? More than a decade later. Titanic was released in 97, broke the record in 98 because it was a December release. More than a decade later. Because more than a decade later. So many movies came came out during the early 
2000s that I would yeah, have but think, But remember, Titanic was so big, like it was a massive breaking of that record, right? I mean, it was, it was, it, it broke the billion mark. Uh, so it had to be a film that would be bigger than that. Well, so, okay. Um, Same director. Was it Avatar? Are we still? Yes. Are we at Avatar? Oh, yes. okay. Well, I'm, yes. I'm hedging my More bets because yes. I feel like I'm just, your quizzes are hard. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> okay. Then not quite a decade later, another massive film opened and broke Avatar's record. It was a big story at the time because there was this battle about, is it going to break it? Is it not going to break it? Well, I, was it back to Jurassic? Was it Jurassic World? No. 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 None of those did as well as, you know, what would have broken Avatar's oh, record? The Avengers, right? Which one? Uh, Endgame? Yes. You are terrible at this game. <sighs> it is, of course, Avengers Endgame. That was the big, big, big one. Don't you remember all the news stories when Endgame came out? They're like, is it going to be- beat Avatar? Oh, my Every God. Every single question you ask me, I feel like you're baiting me to get it wrong. So I'm second guessing and third and fourth and fifth guessing. <laughs> you, you, you just need you to trust troll. yourself. All right. Go ahead. And then, of course, then, of course, Avatar was re-released during uh, during the COVID I panic. Did, in order to get and over the top. It, and it did take the number one spot again so avatar is currently the still considered at this point the highest grossing film of all time 2.85 billion dollars at the uh the box office all right but it's isn't that interesting over time it's just been those one two three four five six seven Eight, nine, ten, eleven films that have essentially from 1915 to 2022. Only 15 films have have edged the the box office up. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't care for that game. Put me on edge, <laughs> but it is interesting <laughs> data. <laughs> it is interesting. It is interesting. All right. Uh, well, we should uh, keep moving on. So we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. Galactic Odyssey against oppression. Ooh. 
big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. Letterbox, Dandy. This is uh, is this a tricky endeavor for us? I don't know. Uh, Letterbox. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna go ahead and, and review and give a star rating. But hey, you know, Letterbox is a great partner for us here at the Next Reel. If you want to get your own pro or patron membership over at Letterbox, just use the code Next Reel at checkout, and uh, it'll get you. It'll knock twenty percent off. Twenty percent off your uh, pro or patron membership, and that does work for upgrades too. Andy, is this is is this a, a three star for you? Kind of a middling to fair. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's going to be fun going through these series because uh, we're going to be doing probably a lot of five star films. Uh, five stars in our heart. It's just been with me forever. It's endlessly perfect. So I love Star Wars. Five stars in heart. Yeah, it's five five star in heart for me too. Surprising, absolutely no one. I think exactly. Uh, no, <laughs> exactly. no stars. No stars have warred in our reviews over on letterbox.com. Have you, have you written your re-review? Did you go into some depth or detail? I didn't go into a lot of depth, but I did talk a little bit about kind of the Harmies yeah. element of it, which was nice to nice to see. So it's it's always nice to revisit these things and and look at them. So Kind of hoping that this show would end up as long as Star Wars, but it turns out we're just minutes short, so <laughs> we should probably <laughs> hang it up. <laughs> Yes, we should. Uh, yeah, so don't forget, everybody, just check out uh, thenextreel.com slash letterbox. It'll take you right to the site. You can uh, sign up for your own patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. Uh, we'd love you to join the conversation as well. You can jump into our Discord community with other like-minded film lovers. Just follow the Discord link at thenextreel.com. Push the button. It'll take you to the invite page, and uh, you can join our community. Uh, of course, if you want to get access to all the goodies that are available at Discord, uh, become a member of the Next Real community. And yeah, and remember, not only that, but if you want to hear longer ad-free episodes before everyone else, make sure to become a supporting member at thenextreel.com slash membership. Well, it's been great talking about Star Wars. I can't wait to continue this series. I, it's like water. To, it's like an oasis to in the desert, Andy. Star Wars, getting Star what's, Wars what's in the our metaphor? list. <laughs> I, I've, I have real problems with it's that like metaphor. Horse, but horse that doesn't water, stop me from trying. Under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. Uh, you you went down to the very bottom of the barrel. To the bottom right? of the barrel. I All sure right. did. What'd you get? What'd you find? I, got a, I did a half star by DBDBDB, who had this to say. Please save yourself and do not watch this movie. I have never in my life watched a movie so boring. I am warning you, do not watch it. Anybody who does like it is being brainwashed by the government. The only good thing is in this movie is the one fat robot and the one gold man. If you do like this movie, go get yourself checked for coronavirus because you have no taste. <laughs> the one fat robot and the gold man. That's actually what some people call our show. Fat robot and the gold man. <laughs> we're, st we're still debating about who's who. <laughs>
Uh, I've got Matt Singer who just writes in with uh, this four and a half stars. A sampling of questions from my four year old during this her first viewing of Star Wars. Why does C-3PO walk like that? Is that Earth? Why are the Jawas so small? Is Obi-Wan a good guy? Why are they looking for them? Is that Earth? What's a tractor beam? Clearly, she loved it. (laughs) Is that Earth? (laughs) Oh, letterboxed. Thanks so much. You have you have giveth again. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.